0: All right. Well, welcome to another episode of Help Me Understand with Steve Boots. Uh, I'm here today talking to Professor Charles Smith. Uh, Charles is an associate professor at uh, St. Thomas More College at the U of S. He teaches uh, political science and talks a lot about labor. He's also the editor of Labor slash Le Travail, uh, a periodical that deals with uh, labor in Canada and in general and uh so yeah thank you so much for joining us charles
1: it's great to be here steve nice to nice to be on your podcast
0: yeah i'm so glad you could join us there is a lot to talk about in saskatchewan politics and canadian politics and world politics and i think maybe the first thing i wanted to touch on with you is uh ryan milik stepping down as leader of the ndp Mm. uh he'll he'll be staying on as interim leader until they find a new leader but uh it's a pretty big shift for the ndp so First question, I suppose, is were you surprised by that? What are your reactions and your takeaways from the resignation?
1: I mean, I was a little surprised in that, you know, he if for anyone familiar with the Saskatchewan NDP, this is a party that has been uh, sort of adrift a little bit since 2007 when they lost government. And uh, I think for many people were surprised that they didn't come back to the prominence that they once had in the last couple of elections. Ryan's run for leader several times. He finally won. Uh, in his last go around, he's only been the leader for, uh, I think, four years, um, had a tough election, but kind of survived by maintaining his own seat. Uh, that was a first since 2007, every other leader had lost their seat. So I guess I kind of thought that like there was one more election in him where, you know, he could make that party his own. But on the other hand, you know, there had been some I'd heard reports uh, sort of on social media that there was some infighting in the small caucus about, you know, the party not growing enough. Uh, but also, I think there was a by-election in the north where the party lost a seat that they've basically held in one form or another since that seat was created. Um, you know, going back almost a hundred years, not quite, almost you know over eighty years, they've held it at some forms. They lost it in this by-election in the middle of a pandemic when arguably the sash party has not been or like, let's just say quite polarizing in their covid policies. so you would have thought this would be an opportunity for you know by-election voters to send a message to the government and they chose to endorse the government now there's a lot of local things happening in the northern Riding too that i'm sure played a role but i think that was a really difficult by-election loss and i think the party and i think ryan recognized that his leadership was tenuous and i think had to step away uh and i think he you know the worst thing i've heard about ryan is that he's a really nice guy, uh, but just doesn't seem to uh, connect with our in our political system and I just always think like, my gosh, like if that if we can't get really nice people running in politics, we're doing something wrong, but nevertheless he he wasn't able to connect in that way, and I think was it had to step aside.
0: Do you have any sort of suspicion about why it might be that Ryan didn't connect because he, he is sort of famously a good guy, and he like literally wrote the book on health policy, yeah. So do you do you, what what in your mind might have led to him not being able to connect with the people of Saskatchewan?
1: You know, I think let's let's put it let's put it this way, to answer that question we have to think a little bit historically. No leader of the NDP since oh seven has been able to connect with the general Saskatchewan public, be it uh Dwayne Liegenfelder, uh Cam Broughton, uh, or any of the interim leaders or Ryan also. So I think there's a structural issue here that the party brand has um been quite uh criticized and i think there's a lot of uh distrust of the party um just a- across the political spectrum now having said that the party still receives you know as a core vote group of support 30 to 36 percent of the vote in every election so there's obviously a core voting block that still identifies with the party but in a two-party system when the other party is getting 50 to 60 percent of the core voting block that's not good enough Right. Uh, and, you know, and what's interesting, and I think and I think this is true of Ryan Cam and Lindenfelder, Dwayne Lindenfelder, who was also the leader. Uh, I think that they've been rowing against a, a, a socio-demographic shift in, in Saskatchewan where it's become a very, very conservative place, specifically in the rural areas. But we see it also in its two urban centers in Saskatoon and Regina and its smaller urban centers in places like Prince Albert and Moose Jaw and, and, uh, and, and elsewhere, uh, Swift Current and other places. So there's that part too. But then I Mm -hmm. think there is some organizational issues the party struggled with. I think there was not a very good job in the 2000s and 1990s when the party was in power of kind of renewing the party. I think it had gotten quite old. Uh, I don't mean that the members themselves, although in some cases, certainly. And there wasn't that party renewal that was underway by the mid 2000s. And I think you see uh, once they lose in 2007, the party establishment, which had been a machine in this province, really does get weakened. And, and by 2000 and sorry, by 2012, 2013, essentially 2011, the 2011 election, essentially the machine was destroyed and it was just inc- it was in, in tatters and it's never really been successfully rebuilt. So you've got a structural issue, you've got socio demographic shifts. And then, yeah, I think you do have some leaders that have not well connected to the political and economic realities of this province. I think the SAS party has been very successful about, you know, labeling and branding Saskatchewan as a oil first province and the NDP, because it cent- occupies the center left, has to address to its core constituency, the legitimate and real issues of climate change anytime that happens. The SAS party hammers away about them being anti-oil, and trying to navigate that is very difficult as a terms of, in terms of both policy and the branding of Saskatchewan being a essentially a petrol province in a way that it always have not has not always been labeled that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you've got a lot of different things happening, and I think Ryan just wasn't able to navigate that terrain in a way that resonated with a lot of different voters. And I think there's also some internal issues here between those who want to see the party move left, those who want to see it move to the center. And I think Ryan was never able to clearly identify with either of them and struggled a little bit and was really moving on. Hey, I'm a, I'm a good leader. I'm likable. Uh, I'm a doctor. I'm a professional. And that didn't resonate with voters in a way that they felt, yes, you're going to solve the issues and problems that I, that I feel I need addressed address by a, by a political <laughs> leader. So that's a lot of different things to think about. Uh, but I think all of it is true in some ways.
0: So, do you think that the structural issues in the NDP now are such that it may be impossible for a new leader to coalesce that sort of opposition to the SAS party? Do you think it's still potentially in the cards?
1: Listen, never say never in politics, right? I mean, the Sask party has done so many different things wrong that I'm just shocked that they still get the level of support they do. I mean, their COVID policies have been to obfuscate, deny, um, put their head in the sand, uh, wait till the last minute, uh, and you know anyone I think who studies health policy, and I I wouldn't count myself in that in that uh, way. I'm not a health policy researcher, but you know I'm informed. I read. I I try and anyone who follows the COVID policies and in, in debates across the world, I think objectively can see Saskatchewan is not a leader in a real way in addressing the the pandemic and the the real uh, tra- human tragedy that was it is COVID 19. And, you know, Mo, the Mo, Mo and company have, I think, never taken it as seriously as other places. They've always been uh, followers when it comes to, you know, preventative, um, you know, measures to address. The, they were the last to implement major restrictions, the first to lift them. Uh, I mean, they were calling Miley Dr. Doom when he was raising concerns right at the beginning. Uh, you know, and he proved, of course, to be correct. Uh, Miley was calling for all party consensus committees to help deal with the COVID issue. Mo and company, <clears throat> of course, ignored that. Uh, and then, you know, now claim you, they want to be the party of unity and, and bring everyone together. I mean, like the party itself has so many different ways you can criticize it in terms of how it governs. Uh, it's a very close knit group. They, they're not open and transparent about their decision-making process. They seem to change policy on a whim. Uh, you know, they're very conservative. They're constantly bashing Ottawa. There's no sense of uh, strategy or, or concrete policy to address the real uh, issues facing Saskatchewan in the next 10 years, their, even their plans, their 10 year plans, like their, uh, their, their forward policies on the, they call it the forward policies and, uh, climate 20, like all these different, like you know, strong Saskatchewan, I forget the name of it, but.
0: Oh, they 30, love to throw the word strong on Oh, well,
1: that's, that's part of their branding. Right. Uh, but they're, you know, they're, they're even their forward looking policies tend to always be looking in the rear view mirror. Right? How do we expand the oil sector when you know obviously we we need to have real conversations about how we can transition away from oil in a way that recognizes its importance, but you know, starts to move away from it into renewables. None of that is the SaaS party is willing to do or wanting to do, and they give they pay lip service to it at, at the margins. So there's a lot of different ways to criticize this government, but one of the big policy questions that I have are the big you know, questions I have, political questions, is no matter how reactionary this government seems to be. The Saskatchewan electorate seems polling. There's a poll today that showed, you know, 50% support for Mo, and it's just, it's very interesting that that support seems to have solidified in the 60 to 50% range, and that's been true since 2011. And it's fascinating that no matter how bad they go, we don't see that same level of of movement the, from the voters. So there's definitely something in Saskatchewan that needs to be understood, and I think as researchers and commentators like us it's on us to try and understand that a little bit. And, you know, we need to figure that out.
0: Do you think that the durability of Scott Moe's support um, is part of what is constantly driving this appetite for a new leader on the political left, or maybe even that interest in sort of a new third party emerging? Do you think that sort of, I don't even, I, I don't quite know what I'm trying to say here, but like, do you think that, that, frustra- that frustration with that solidity of that support for Scott Moe is driving all this frustration and maybe even to some degree infighting or fracture on the political center and left in Saskatchewan?
1: Well, let's look at it a little bit in the you know, 14 or 15 years the SAS party's been in power. I think I was wrong. So I, I'm constantly wrong in my predictions. I thought that part of the Saskatchewan party's success from 20, uh, 2007 until 2017 when Brad Wall stepped down as premier was that Wall himself, I think was fairly charismatic, uh, had a broad level of support amongst the Saskatchewan electorate, was a talented enough politician, I think, to uh, be on the right, but seemingly open enough to small L liberals who would vote federally liberal, but obviously very comfortable to vote SAS party provincially. And I think, you know, and I'm a bit, I would say I'm relatively new to Saskatchewan. I, I, I moved here in 2010. And have spent a decade trying to understand and research the place, but I'm not—I don't have the long memory as, as as some of your listeners may have. I think there was on the liberal right spectrum a genuine distrust of the NDP machine. That essentially, I think they were fairly ruthless. I think they governed—not uh, so much governed, but the party itself had all kinds of networks and communities. And I think if you were not involved with that, I think that it, you developed a long-term hostility to it, which I think still resonates, especially in rural areas. Now. I'm not saying that as a criticism, but just to recognize that there's long memories of that machine. And if you were Mm offside of it, you know, you, you, you're never going to go back there. Right. So there's part, there's something that we need to understand there as well. Uh,
0: Burned a fair bit of bridges among certain.
1: Well, I think so. And I, you know, like, listen, I'm sure there's many people from those days who would disagree with me and that's fine. Uh, They, they would probably have better insight than me, but I, you know, just from talking to people, like they'll mention these kind of stories and it's like, that, you know, you think to yourself, well, that happened in 1987, like, and you're still angry about it, like, but like, there's a, there's a, there's a reason why the SAS party constantly brings up NDP decisions in the 1990s, because while most of us, especially me, like, I didn't live here then, uh, no one in the party today, I think in the caucus was around then, uh, but yet still, it still resonates, right? There's still this. So I think that's part of the success too, right? That The SAS party is incredibly good at saying, listen, we are a big enough tent for all of you non-ndp voters right that's what they want you to believe i think that may have been true in the early days i don't think it's true anymore i think they are solidly a conservative party but they still attract enough of the non-conservative vote uh in the province to maintain that tent so i guess what i'm trying to answer your question is i think the party itself is very good well it's very good at a couple things it's very good at labeling itself the non NDP party. It's very good at aligning with moneyed interests in the province, specifically oil, oils, the oil sector and oil and gas sector in Saskatchewan and in Alberta. They're very good about keeping a tight lid on part on the party itself. So you never hear dissent in the South no. Party, right? It, you hear from Mo, and that's about it, right? When was the last time you heard, uh, you know, I don't know. I'm going to say like Gord Wyant, the justice minister. Give a press conference without Mo item. It just doesn't happen. Right.
0: Like I think there's, like, the last time somebody broke party discipline was Nadine Wilson with the sticker.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and now she's out of caucus, right? Like there's uh there's um it's a very tightly controlled party. And I think it works because enough of the people inside the party realize that they want to be in power. And staying in power means not infighting. And I think that's enough of a message. I think Mo himself is quite uh, quite, I'm going to say, it, I don't want to say authoritarian and I don't want him to think obviously he follows the rules of say, but he governs with a very Stephen Harper, like authoritarian, uh, control of his own party. I think,
0: uh, Would you, I, would yeah. you say I, that there's, it, it's, I, I don't know. We, we talked about this the other day that it's not quite authoritarianism. It's more just this very deeply held belief that they just need to get the right guy in the seat. And they'll make the right decisions. Do you think that's some measure of it too? That they just think yeah. we need to get one of our own in there.
1: I just I'd say Mo runs the party with a very heavy hand, and you know you're not going to yeah. hear ministers criticize Mo. You're not even going to hear backbenchers criticize Mo. And let's face it, Mo's not a charismatic political leader. He doesn't give the barn-burning speeches. Uh, he's you know he's kind of wooden. Uh, he's I don't think he's a great public speaker. Um, you know he, he comes across in the legislature as a bit of a bully. Uh, in response to some legitimate questions the opposition asks. Um, He's got, you know, a questionable history that I think for a lot of politicians in other places would be a no-starter, a non-starter, right, for success in politics. Um, But here, for whatever reason, Mo Mo resonates. You know, I think it it helps that he's a a rural guy, has roots in rural communities. He's, you know, an ex-farmer. Like, I think those things still mean something uh, for a lot of voters. Um, So I think there's part of that, too. Uh, again like lots of different moving parts here i think steve to understand one of the Mm -hmm. things that we i think we really need to have a conversation about is like why is saskatchewan so conservative when historically they were so open to voting for non-conservative parties and that's an interesting socio-demographic political ideological conversation is worth having and i think it really does begin it's always been here it's always been a right Mm. uh but the left never collapsed the way it did in 07 so we're we're kind of in this interesting spot where there's like if you look federally there's no there's 14 conservative MPs provincially they they garner in between 50 and 60% of provincial support like you're looking at a province that probably is the most conservative place in the country uh and running in that in that environment from a non-conservative perspective is tough um so you know you're not Do it's you... a, it's, a, it's complicated <clears throat>
0: Do you think that there's somebody who I'm going to ask you to put your speculating wildly hat on?
1: Mm, Never good. (laughs) It's always, I'm
0: always wrong. (laughs) Do you have any guesses of who might emerge in this upcoming leadership race? I know there's, there's lots of interesting names and there's lots of, lots of good folks, but do you have any suspicions about who may sort of rise to the fore? I don't, I don't know. No, I
1: don't. And I, my, my suspicion is that the party has to, do some deep I mean this has been true for a while but certainly some inward looking what is it we stand for who where where can we grow uh, I th- I think it's long past time for the party to elect a, a woman leader uh, the caucus has a lot of I think very bright very energetic very um, I think uh, very good uh, women M- MLAs who I think would be great leaders uh, and I think be a stark contrast uh, to you know sort of the more conservative uh, male-dominated SAS Party caucus. Um, so I think like on that level, I think there's hope for renewal on that front. Uh, obviously, mm-hmm. attracting younger voters is always people talk about. But of course, it's difficult because younger voters tend to be very politically engaged and passionate, but they don't always show up in the way that older voters do. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's difficult. But I do think you know changing the demographics to the party. Um, really rebuilding from its urban center outwards, I think, is really important. Nevertheless, I think the party has to have a long conversation about how it can attract non-conservative voters in rural areas. Um,
0: because do you think that the that the Notley NDP in Alberta are an example that the Saskatchewan NDP can look to? I think that's because what we'll
1: um, be doing. Yes,
0: because like I think about like the 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 Ralph Klein hegemony. Uh, and how it took the NDP a very long time to break that down, but like the NDP seems to have become a lot more politically viable in a very short time in Alberta.
1: Yeah. Alberta has a history of this, right? Where they, where they sort of toss out longstanding governments and try someone new uh
0: but would you say though Saskatchewan has that too like we've had some wild swings like Blakeney swung to Divine really far and then yeah. the Divine Parliament or legislature swung to Romano and et cetera et cetera what, what
1: change I think in Saskatchewan uh by the 1990s was that uh the Saskatchewan voter became far less um willing to swing <laughs> so once they moved mm. it, you know, I think Romano did the party a uh, misservice in terms of his broad policy agenda where he was so I think he moved so far to uh the politics of austerity and to the right um that the party you know I think the party was never going to appeal to the hardcore conservative voter and it lost a lot of support in those years uh you and I think by the end of the the regime or the time in government the SAS party filled some of that void and they've never really got it back but what? But to answer your original question, I think yes and no. So Notley, Notley's government, I think you know many of its champions, I think can can certainly champion some great policy changes in the province. But one of the things that Notley was you know doing repeatedly was championing championing the same socioeconomic sort of pillars of Alberta's economy that the Conservatives did, right? So mm. you know, build pipelines, more oil extraction, right? Like so, like how transitional was that government is an interesting question to think through. But yes, I do think the Saskatchewan NDP would love to see that kind of transformation in the party and to see it as a viable alternative to the older conservative uh, sort of Sask party uh, that, you know, that we are kind of living with now.
0: So I think pointing at the resource um, issues, with, that the NDP has with like pipelines and things probably brings up an important question that Saskatchewan and NDP is looking at themselves pretty hard right now, is the name and the federal association. Yeah. Um, do you think it's helping them or hurting them?
1: It's a good question. I've I've talked to people on both sides of that question. So some people think it's just like a branding exercise, right? Put a fresh coat of paint on the party and that will help alleviate the older, deeper historical concerns of the party's time in office and how it ran its internal affairs. On the other hand, voters are not stupid, right? So if you just change the name of the party, they're not going to just immediately start relooking at it again. So I'm not sure that just changing the name is going to solve the problem of, the, of a party that's, a party that's not in the conservative spectrum trying to run in a very conservative place. So it doesn't do the hard work of, you know, organizing, bringing new members into the party, coming up with innovative policy solutions and having a backing for it. So I think it's not a solution long term. Nevertheless, branding matters. We know that. So certainly a healthy conversation about what the party is and what the party stands for. You mentioned earlier, Steve, that there's this sort of uh, push for a new party. And mm. uh, and like what I hear that I don't know what to make of it in that I don't think it's coming specifically from that 36 to 37 core support for the NDP. I think it's coming from disgruntled SAS party members and small L liberals, right? People who would be aligned with the federal liberal party. Uh, So like a third, and of course they want to be a centrist party. And my question back is, well, what is it about the current NDP that you don't see as centrist? Or what is it you don't like about the current party where like, are they really too far to the left? Do you really think that? Because if that's the case, then. I don't know what a centrist party would would do that the two current parties are not doing.
0: And it always seems like there's a very hazy definition of what centrist even means.
1: Or that it never changes, right? The mm. center has changed. If you are a lib- a federal liberal in 1979, 1978, you are so far to the left of the mainstream right now, you would, your head would spin. Right. If you look at some of the things that Pierre Elliott Trudeau the first uh, did um, in power, by today's standard, that would make him a radical socialist, right? So mm. a centrist liberal in 1978 would be a radical left-winger in 2022.
0: So the center so, is, sorry, you, yeah. So are you basically, you're saying that like the political Overton window has just sort of pulled so far to the right? 100%, in
1: right? I don't think there's any argument about that, right? Yeah. Like that the the political center in 2022 in, in Saskatchewan is a fairly neoliberal right-wing center.
0: So- I think one important problem that's facing Saskatchewan politics outside of the the sort of struggles of the NDP and the SaASS party is um, a broad disillusionment with politics in general. Um, Saskatchewan, like the turnout in Athabasca was something like twenty two percent.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, so there's a there's a movement partly that just is not that interested and frustrated. But there's also an active movement to way back to grassroots with people like Deanna Ogle from the Sask NDP executive who resigned her post and pointed, said she was going to refocus her energy on grassroots movements. So um, what's your sort of take on that, on sort of the political disengagement happening and the the people moving focus to grassroots and away from electoral politics?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's not really new. Right, I think there's on the left. There's always been this struggle to how much do you engage electorally versus how much do you try and build broad, you know, fighting social movements that can push any political party in a direction to implement their policy agendas. Uh, I I think what uh, I won't speak for uh, uh, Miss Ogle, right? Like I think she obviously felt frustrated with what was happening inside the party and felt she could do more, and that's and and I think that's to be commended. Um, Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, I do worry that. I worry about a left that doesn't have an electoral strategy um, because regardless of um, regardless of uh, how much effort and energy we can put into social movements uh, without a, a electoral challenge to the right wing and the right wings always in power, we have no real way to challenge them other than to just make good arguments and th- you know And to try and hope that they adopt certain policies, like I, I just there's a limitation I think to only focusing on one. I think we have to focus on both. Now that's asking a lot of our current activist base, and I recognize how exhausting it is to be an activist in in a a very conservative place, like Mm -hmm. Saskatchewan is today. So, um, but here's the thing: like when you look at when you look at the 2021 election night and results are rolling in, and the NDP wins 12 seats and Miley barely holds on to his. And Scott Moe mm-hmm. gives a speech on election night and says to my, to the voters who chose the Buffalo option, right, the far right sort of separatist mm-hmm. parties that are angry at Ottawa for this or that decision. Usually it's on pipelines. Uh, he was more concerned about the 5% of the voters who were moving to the right than he was about the 37 or 36% or 34% of voters who voted NDP. In other words, that was his biggest, he felt that was his biggest threat. Right. So, Do
0: you think that stems from concern about a potential fracture within his own party?
1: Yes, of course. Of course it was. But he, what it showed is that he had no threat from the left. And without mm. a threat from the left, you get government that does what this government has done for the last two years. Right. It has mm. no concern that it's going to lose to the left. So it governs to its right flank. And for whatever reason, the moderate voters that are now clamoring for a new party are telling pollsters that whether they're angry or disillusioned, and they certainly are, there's enough of them that are still willing to put their ex beside a Sask party ballot because there's, and that alone, right. That, I think that's why it was so devastating for the, not just for the NDP, but for good government in Saskatchewan, the party lost that Athabasca seat um, mm. because that, the government, well, well, how does Mo internalize it? Well, what he says is everything we're doing is great. And so he, it just reinforces in his own mind and his own party's mind, that they don't have to do anything different uh mm-hmm. and it's because there's no accountability, of this this just makes it much harder to hold the government accountable so there's no threat and it makes them more arrogant uh it makes them more willing to to you know to to govern to their right flank for fear of splitting the vote on the right which i think they are legitimately scared of um
0: do so, you think I, that the vote do you think that there's a real chance of the vote on the right splitting about some sort of buffalo Western separatist party emerging as an actual electoral threat, or do you think a lot of this is backbench noise? I think it's, I think there's, I think that the SAS party looks into the future, the immediate future,
1: they're more concerned about their own voters staying home. They're more concerned about more radical populist threat uh, threats from the farther right far right, uh, as given personification by the people's party at the federal level and the, the freedom convoy, United, we roll, Uh, United grassroots sort of, uh, you know, far right movements that I think there's a reason why he took Scott Mo takes a United grassroots call uh, for an hour, and then radically shifts his policy agenda, uh, but not a a call from the unions, right? Or the Mm -hmm. teacher's president who's saying like, can you please get some, uh, you know, PPE in the, um, in the classroom? And can you help renovate our classrooms? Like, they don't act on those calls. But they talk about a a far right movement that wants to get a get rid of all masks and vaccine mandates, like, there's a reason why mo does that kind of thing and, and ignores the unions and ignores the, any kind of left movement right
0: so looking to history and other places where does this seem to lead is there a tipping point where the things shift or does does just this right wing political hegemony become just frozen
1: no i mean like I, I, it was funny when I first moved to Saskatchewan, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine. I mean, I'd always been interested in the province in that I've read about the NDP and I, uh, and the CCF and Tommy Douglas. And, uh, I always had a, a admiration for the Douglas government and Tommy Douglas in particular. My parents always told stories about voting for him and meeting him at a rally and named my own first son, his middle name is Thomas after Tommy. Douglas. Like we, you know, we have this sort of, you know, but my friend of mine said, when I moved here, he said, you know, like what you don't understand is that, um, we're, I think that Saskatchewan is going to be the new Alberta in that we'll have a 45-year reign of the Sask party. And I looked at him like, what? That's ridiculous. Like, you don't know what you're talking about. And of course, he'd only been here for about five or six years before that. But now I'm starting to wonder if he might have been very astute in his forward-thinkingness in terms of what what's going on. I don't know. I mean, what what? there's an old adage in Canadian... To answer your question, I don't know. But the, there's an old adage in Canadian politics that voters tend to throw governments out rather than elect someone brand new with new and Exciting policy ideas, and one wonders at what point voters might actually start to question the the, the direction of the SAS party government. Because what do they stand for now? What what is the party in power to do, uh, other than to be a vocal mouthpiece for the oil sector, which is you know seems to be their main economic, social, political platform of any given moment.
0: The truth is, that I don't know. That, do you think that that's a reflection of them being sort of? Uh, very financially beholden to resource interests, particularly out-of-province resource interests?
1: I think it matters. I mean, I think they're very conscious of it. There's a reason they won't bring in Saskatchewan's the last jurisdiction that has any... I mean, it really is the last Wild West of campaign financing. No other province in Canada. It has as weak uh, restrictions on, on money coming into political parties in Saskatchewan does. So they're obviously very aware of it. It's what matters. Um, but you think about it, like, Schools are crumbling, education has been cut for about a decade under this government. Universities are crumbling, tuition's going up, hospital staff are burnt out. Like, what's the big policy success that this government under Scott Moe can point to? Uh, and I mean, I would challenge anyone to tell me what their big policy successes have been under this premier. I can't think of one.
0: I mean, he talks a lot about helium, I guess. <laughs> right? Um. One specific sort of event that feels very representative of the way that the SaaS party does things is the closure of the STC. Um, can you walk uh, my audience maybe a little bit, first of all, through what the STC was and uh, what happened when it was shuttered and what the impacts of that were?
1: Well, I mean, so the STC is the provincial bus uh, company, right? So the, the Saskatchewan's a very big province geographically it's very uh, remote. There's a lot of small communities all over the province that don't have any kind of interprovincial transportation network. So if you don't have a car in Saskatchewan, even in the cities, it's hard, but outside of the cities, it's nearly impossible to get anywhere. So in the um, 1940s, when the CCF under Tommy Douglas was elected, uh, they went about using the state to sort of modernize Saskatchewan society. Saskatchewan society in uh, the 1930s, uh, it was was essentially not being governed in, a, in a, what we would call a modern way. And I, let me give you an example. When the Liberals were defeated by the CCF in '44, Douglas government came in, and the shelves were literally bare. There was no Archive Act where the government's papers had to be submitted. The, the party essentially took everything. Douglas gets a call in the first week and a half of his pr- premiership. Uh, asking if he's going to attend the premier's meeting in Ottawa about post-war reconstruction, and he has to admit, I'm sorry, I didn't even know about it, right? Uh, Because the liberals essentially governed the place uh, like a, you know, sort of almost like a feast and when they were defeated, which they didn't expect, they kind of took everything with them. Uh, I mean, it was, it was, it was not a modern, publicly administered society, like state, it was a, it was very, backwards, you know, for lack of a better term. So Douglas brings in like the Archives Act, every government has to submit a certain amount of papers So the archive it brings in like it creates a Department of Labor because, you know, there's workers <laughs> in it. like it, the modern state is essentially created by the CCF. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So like that, that <laughs> alone would suggest that there was a, a, a lot of work to do. Right. And the other thing that the government did is they started creating because Saskatchewan is very, it's a rural community, it's primarily agricultural in those days. Uh, it starts using the state to bring in modern infrastructure. So, the market couldn't provide rural electrification. It would be too expensive. It's it, there's no profit to be made from it. But the state can take on that level of debt to provide that kind of infrastructure, which is one of the things that Douglas does. In fact, it's one of the things he was most proud of. We he, he said to interviewers when he left office, we brought electricity to farms and farmers in rural areas where no one ever thought they would get that kind of thing. So, but it was the state that the CC. So the state. For the CCF is an instrument of good and something that we can improve people's lives. And of course, in those days, I we in a car and needed to be able to get around and the bus service as a crown corporation was designed to do that. Now, fast forward to the SAS party's time in office. I mean, I think this is a government that is hostile to publicly owned institutions. They certainly have not created any new ones, but I think they're also sensitive enough to know that the crowns, especially the big three, I call them the fourth rail of provincial politics. Like if they were to go after selling SaskTel, or um, Sask Energy, or some of the big crowns. There's going to be some pushback, and it's, it's political capital they haven't been willing to spend. It doesn't mean they never will, but they haven't done that to this point. But SDC, mm-hmm. I think, had become a bit of a uh, liability for the government because it was losing money, and always it lost money most of the years. Um, and the reason was, is I think, more people were driving than had, be, you know, than were taking public transportation. Nevertheless, rather than think about ways to make it work, because a lot of people relied on it. If you're in a small town and have a car, and you need to get to the city. It's really hard to do uh, without without some sort of public infrastructure. Uh, if you don't have a car, if you're if you have a vision disability or you can't drive because you have a physical disability, or if you're elderly and don't have a car and you need to get to a doctor's appointment in the city, um, those were the type of people that were relying on the public um, system. And the SAS party, you know, without any really warning, they didn't campaign on it privatized it, well, it just sold it off and, and just closed it. Um, and it, it left a lot of people, um, I think, you know, sort of in the dust, and a lot of people were not able to, 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 to meet, you know, but the problem, of course, is that it, it catered to the most marginalized in our society. Uh, and uh, it didn't hurt them electorally. Uh, and a real shame. I think it, it's a, it's a real, it's, it, it, it's sad, right. That we can't have modern public infrastructure in an era when climate change is a real concern where we need more people in publicly owned transportation that can get multiple people to locations, um, where that we just gave up on this, this great public institution. And rather than think about ways to reform it, to make it work better. Uh, we, the, the SAS party just got rid of it.
0: Did. Did any private industry fill that space of so transport in small, small province or small no, uh, rural areas?
1: No, the short answer is, in fact, one of the great policy failures of modern government has been that we have less public transportation in terms of intercity travel today than they did a hundred years ago. So a uh, hundred years ago, you would have had options like Greyhound would have intercity rail, uh, all of that's gone. Uh, we rely overwhelmingly on private. Private ownership of vehicles to get from city to city in uh, the Prairie provinces, which are some of the largest geographic, densely or not densely populated places, where we, you know, where having more people in cars is, you know, I think in 2022 a problem, uh, and yet we don't have any infrastructure to to think outside that box.
0: Do you think? Um at least some portion of that is just how a sort of deeply capitalism has its teeth dug into Western Canada and just that sort of that very individualistic, you know, hyper status focused, um, you know, needing to own your own vehicle, your own truck, whatever. Do you think some element of that sort of factors into that as well?
1: Oh, I think so. I think for sure. Uh, you know, I think that's part of the cultural sort of, uh, mentality of the, so-called you know the so-called Western frontier, right? That is like having your vehicle as part of the freedom to move around. And uh, I don't like that language, by the way. I don't think the West was ever a frontier. It's always been populated by advanced um, you know civilizations and peoples. Uh, it's just you know, we they, they chose not to recognize it in the the days of uh, of colonization. Uh, but today, I think that mentality. Certainly, but I think the bigger issues is we don't have governments that are willing to invest in public, high-quality public infrastructure, uh, where we we're more than happy to have the SAS party donate or not donate, subsidize the oil, extraction of oil at, at half a billion dollars a year, uh, but not a publicly run transportation system that could actually benefit uh, the most marginalized in society. So I mean, these are let's not kid ourselves. These are policy choices. These are not just the market being efficient or not. These are deliberate policy choices uh, where governments have have a have a real role to play
0: it seems like and i'm a bit of an outsider to this so maybe you can you can help me connect the dots a little bit but it it seems like a lot of this really um started to gather momentum partly with the mulrooney government but then the christian liberals with a very significant hollowing out of the public service do you think that sort of led to sort of a mass aversion to public spending in the Canadian political sphere?
1: Well, we look at the advent of neoliberalism in Canada, uh, you know, sort of the, the the mass privatization of public infrastructure, the uh, you know the massive cutting of taxes, uh, uh, I should say the massive cutting of income taxes and business taxes. That all really does take hold. Actually, by the end of the Trudeau era. You know, accelerated by the Mulroney years, further accelerated by the Chrétien years, um, certainly set the tone uh, and provinces were doing similar things. So, you know, your listeners might if they if they've been uh, following provincial politics for as long as you and I probably have, they'll remember, like the Mike Harris years in Ontario, where uh, similar policy objectives were, were undertaken. The Ralph Klein years, the Gordon Campbell years in, in B.C., certainly the Bradwall um grant Devine, uh, scott Moyers in saskatchewan you know Phil years and uh, our film years. So uh, manitoba is always a, a quagmire in my mind i'm
0: there
1: were governments in manitoba in the 80s and early 90s before gary dewar became premier uh and still <laughs>
0: quebec,
1: right we saw the same thing in quebec under the pq uh, especially under perizot and uh, uh and uh, pq governments of bouchard and then of course uh the name that gets keeps getting floated around now for potential conservative leader uh uh the liberal leader in quebec um uh sure yeah under sure so like you know we see similar movements and yeah like th- those governments have not we, none of them have invested in high quality public infrastructure to address the issues we're talking about today to me that's actually an opening right to think about like if i was thinking if i had the power to wave a wand and, and think about renewing the provincial ndp my i think the three areas i would focus on are climate change uh you know actually talking about value for money for public resources like our are, are mm. oil companies and potash companies paying enough to the provincial treasury uh so that the people of saskatchewan are benefiting in the way they should be uh and then that would lead to then we take those royalties and invest it in like a bus service tr- rail transportation you know real climate change action transitioning mm. away from fossil fuels in a real and meaningful way without without having workers having to bear the brunt of the transition so things that would be my priority. But I think if I was giving this speech at a policy convention, you know, how many different leader post uh, uh, commentators would talk about me being so far left that I would, I would be not appealing at all to the mainstream. So I- Do you I,
0: think that's poisoned the waters a little bit? The the right-wing sort of media ecosystem in Saskatchewan. So for, for those who um, are, are not in Saskatchewan, there are sort of a couple of major newspapers, all of which are controlled by post media. Uh, and then a radio network that is also a major pre- political contributor to the Sask party that has a pretty clear political bent in their talk radio. Yeah. So do you think that the sort of right-leaning media ecosystem in Saskatchewan has some factor in that as well?
1: Well, let me, let me step back. I don't want to play conspiracy theory and say the media has an agenda and doesn't report on news and, you know, those kind of, like, I think they actually are some really great journalists, really great commentators. Even in post media, less so in Rolko. Uh because <laughs> uh, Rolko really is an unabashed SAS Party donator. They've given it tens of thousands of dollars over the years in a way that, you know, it's just, it's, and then of course their, their programming is just overtly pro SAS Party. Like, I don't think they even would deny that. Oh,
0: Scott Mo has like multiple hours on air there every day. Yeah. And so is Walt, Walt still does.
1: Yeah,
0: They have a very, very buddy-buddy relationship.
1: Yeah, and of course, they defend it by, hey, we're a private company, whatever we want. Um, but I do, so I, I, I would caveat, I don't want to sort of lay a conspiracy that the media don't report or don't actually have good commentary, they do, but I would say that there are limitations and we have can have legitimate criticisms of, of the press in Saskatchewan and that there's not a lot of them, right? Mm-hmm. Now, you talk to any any older politician, conservative or new Democrat in Saskatchewan, They'll talk about nights uh, where the press gallery was full you know, covering debates in the legislature uh, that was end up in the newspaper the next day. And now you, you know, you talk to people and there's like three people in the press gallery, many of whom are junior reporters. And that's not a criticism of junior reporters, it's just that places like Saskatchewan and Winnipeg and a smaller town, Manitoba and Saskatchewan tend to be where young journalists get, you know, kind of cut their teeth and then, you know, within a year or two, they go somewhere else. So you don't have, and that's because, you know, media consolidation, there's not as, you know, they've they've got rid of like all their dailies and they cover it with like sort of the press wire and, and what have you. So there's been, I think, a real structural limitation on the media uh, to cover it and give diversity to the voices. But I got to tell you, you know, the more I hear about journalists talking about the center as if, and they never problematize the political center as if it's just a magical place where every political party has to be. I want to bang my head against the wall because let's face it, like, that center, as we talked about, Steve, is not some mythical, magical place where every voter is like voters have values and they, they care about things and the center moves.
0: It's, it's like people thinking that everybody wants a glass of lukewarm water. Like (laughs) it's what nobody wants. You can't split the middle on these things. Um, but talking about sort of the political spectrum in Saskatchewan and talking about sort of the struggle that the NDP has had to um, make, have electoral success, I think one thing that we need to address is the struggle that the left has had to um, organize. And so, you you're the editor of of Labor slash Litavai, yeah,
1: um, bilingual, bilingual, which,
0: which you know talks about labor in Canada and Saskatchewan. And and so, my question to you really is. What has happened in, you, I am, I apologize for the enormous question, but what has happened to labor in Saskatchewan? What has happened to labor power, labor rights? How has it become um, so pushed to the side? Yeah.
1: Yeah, that really is like multiple doctoral dissertation answers you've just asked of me, but uh, I'll Sorry. give you- No, that's okay. So what, <laughs> historically, labor in Saskatchewan, I mean, we're talking about like the entire history of the province is actually not a major factor um, in terms of shaping, you know, public policy or governments until the 1940s, when the Saskatchewan CCF passes a far reaching trade union act, which then allows the labor movement to grow at rapid rates. Hmm. Uh, And so and the reason that was, is because the CCF was the first in the country. Again, this is an example, I think, where a far reaching, a bold left party or progressive party can actually shape the policy agenda well into the future in that ccf was always populist but always Mm -hmm. had a populist bent to the left now that left moved as you know the ccf government under douglas definitely gravitates to the center by about 48 to 64. but nevertheless that what they did with that Treaty act is they allowed public sector workers to organize 20 years before any other jurisdiction in canada chose to do that and that allowed the labor movement to grow by leaps and bounds in Saskatchewan to the point where by the sixties, and of course, I think sometimes there were CCF politicians who regretted that because there's the labor movement started flexing their muscle a little bit against their employer, which was the government. Uh, <laughs> but nevertheless, like it did grow a movement. And by the when you look, when you trace labor militancy, and I do this by just strikes and lockouts, you know, Saskatchewan far outpaces Manitoba throughout the fifties, sixties, seventies and eighties. But by the 1980s and 90s, there, I think the the pressures that we talked about at the federal and provincial level were really hammering at the organized labor movement. We, we witnessed deindustrialization. Saskatchewan's never been like a manufacturing economy like in Ontario or Quebec or even BC. They've always been dependent on natural resource extraction and uh, agriculture uh, disproportionately to other things. But nevertheless you do have a, a large militant public sector and small but militant private sector in like really interesting places like saskatchewan has higher unionization rates in retail than in other places i think that's because you had you have um a government that for at least some of its history would support those kind of organizing drives through legislation and policy so one of the i just did a recently did a talk to an ndp group and i i asked the question like what would a bold policy agenda bold reform to a trading act in 2022 look like that was as radical as 1944. How do we get workers into movements? The other side of it is that I do think that, you know, there, so we've seen like a structural decline in the private sector. You know, we've gone from highs of in the 20% of unionization in the private sector to under 14 today in the private sector, the public sector is very healthy. It's 70 to 80% unionization rate, but the private sector is taking it in the teeth like for the last 25 years i also think we've witnessed a labor movement that's um how would i say it uh respecting my my colleagues and friends who are in the labor movement i think we've witnessed a labor movement that's less willing to use their most important weapon to challenge employer power and that's the strike uh we've seen a a radical decline in workers going on strike
0: so i wanted to talk to you about this because i have i have a Questions about the the sort of legislative side of this to start with, but there's there's so many aspects to this. But one thing that really sticks in my mind is I as a teacher have been asked a number of times why why aren't teachers going on strike? And the answer is generally that you know, for teachers, healthcare workers, et cetera, et cetera, striking is very much legally tied to bargaining. Yeah. Do you think that's one part of it? Is it yeah, like you, just the right to strike has been eroded?
1: Well, I mean, that's always it's been true for 60 years, the right to strike has been tied to bargaining uh, Mm -hmm. since the night, since the 50s, well, 40s, 45, 44 in Saskatchewan. Is it that old? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so that's always been true for in living memory for any worker today, that Mm -hmm. the only time you can legally strike is when your collective agreement has expired. But even and that's a limitation, right? Like now, of course, work unions could certainly strike illegally. But now you're striking not against just against an employer, you're, you're striking against the sort of the, the power that the law has to shape the legitimacy of your struggle. So mm-hmm. being on legal strike gives you far more moral weight than being on strike illegally where you're, you know, your employer and and Rolko Radio uh, and, uh, you know, the government will claim that you're just a bunch of thugs, right? On You're doing you're breaking the law, right? Is with all the mm-hmm. So, but well, here, here's my so here to flip your question maybe back at you is to say like you know you are are president of your union uh, Patrick Mays I think uh, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, I think is a really as a real guy of integrity I actually think he cares a lot about your profession and about you as an individual teacher and your collective well-being he's been very critical of the government's lack of any new money for uh, infrastructure for you know purifying the air in your classrooms for any kind of renovations PPE for teachers. None of which has come, which of which the Mm -hmm. government's ignored. Uh, and in fact not only ignored, cut your budgets, uh, during the course of this pandemic and how has it suffered electorally? Not at all. So Mm -hmm. then my question is, so if you're just an average person on the street, kids in school, uh, why would you think there's anything wrong with the schools? Uh, teachers don't seem to be raising, you have a one guy, one president of your union, so I guess like, when was the last time you had to be inconvenienced by a teacher strike? or healthcare strike or any strike. Mm-hmm. Right. And I'm not saying this as, and of course I, I think it's fair to say, well, it's really easy for you on your, uh, on your, your pit pillar or your pedestal to like, tell us that we should be putting our jobs and careers on the line. And that's fair, but mm-hmm. if, uh, and it, it's an absolutely fair criticism, but what I would say, Steve, is that, you know, the public elects the SAS party, the SAS party, Undermines and defunds public institutions, and the workers in those institutions uh, don't respond in a way where the public even knows that this is happening because it's all happening by stealth, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, and I again, I respect the leadership of these unions. I obviously respect individual workers uh, who are struggling under these conditions, but without any kind of collective response to say, you know what, we just can't take it anymore. Like, teachers were in a legal strike position just before the pandemic took off, Mm -hmm. and the government refused to do anything to make schools safer so kids could stay in school. And teachers had a golden opportunity to walk off the job legally. And Mm -hmm. what did they do? They quickly signed an agreement that was worse than the one they rejected prior to bargaining started. And I just thought thought, that was a bad decision, I think. You had Mm -hmm. an opportunity to tell the public, this is not good enough. We're doing this to protect your kids and our work environments. And rather than do that, they chose to play it safe. And I think playing it safe is allowing the conditions in our public institutions to deteriorate. Now,
0: I don't, so, get, can I, I don't
1: want to think I'm critiquing LT. I get it, right? I get the pressure, yeah. but I just want to say like, that's a reality that we have to think about.
0: And you're, it's a totally valid point. My question actually is about the fear of back to work legislation. Where does that fit sure. into oh, this whole yeah. schmozzle?
1: So fun fact, the SAS party has never passed a piece of back to work legislation in its entire history. Uh, really? No. Nope. That surprises me. Because it's never needed to. Just the threat of it's been enough? No, they've never even threatened it. Because there there hasn't been a significant public sector strike in its tenure. They've been in power for 14 years. They, have by stealth, have undermined every major public institution in this province, and there has not been a significant labor disruption.
0: If it wasn't so term. terrible, I'd be impressed. <laughs> yep. So how do you think that they've managed to it how do you think they've managed to maintain this level of okay i am going to challenge you slightly there was this they didn't oh you're right there wasn't the work legislation never mind i'm wrong um my question then is how have they sort of held the unions at bay this way so that's a good question
1: and i like i we have to be careful i don't want to sound like i'm uh criticizing what I know are people who are dedicated to the cause and who feel strongly in their opp- opposition to this government and who are work every day under, you know, tiring and, and stressful conditions, trying to build a movement. So I think there's a couple things. I think one is that, um, public institutions, uh, have for a very long time, uh, always been under the threat of, um, austerity, uh, and, um, and governments have used that threat quite significantly. There's been some legal successes that make it harder for government to be really aggressive against their own public workers. Like in 2017, faced with its the first real shortfall in terms of finances in his tenure just before he resigned, Brad Wall said, we want all public sector workers to take a 5% cut. Uh, now, historically, I think, had they done that before the Supreme Court had said he has a right to collectively bargain, I think they just would have legislated it, but they didn't because there was legal restrictions on it. And I think Wall Wall suffered a bit of a political defeat there. I don't think it led to him resigning specifically, but it didn't hurt, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so I, I think there's that going on. And you know, I think the labor movement has been on the defensive for a very long time. And uh, you know, the, if you think about the challenges that workers faced in building these institutions, I mean, workers were striking in record numbers during the second world war, in a war, during a war, right? Mm-hmm. So there, I can't imagine those pressures were, were any worse then than they are today. But what I think we've seen is a is a labor movement that has lost some of that determination to challenge governments through the strike weapon because of the real legal implications you pointed to. And I fully respect that, but I recognize that there are limitations to actually progressive change. If the public can't see that these institutions are not doing well. Um, and I it's a real like, gosh, I wish I had the answer there. Uh, but it's a real issue, right? Like we know historically, and here's the, what I would, I know we're getting close to the, the, the hour or time. That's okay. But what I would say is this, no worker war workers movement has ever won anything without struggle. Mm. So we know that historically, like, that's just a concrete fact, um, either struggle through strikes or struggle through, you know, electing governments that side with labor. Right.
0: Uh, and usually a combination of both. So, so I think go, that. Sorry, go on. I think that draws us to a really fantastic place to um, maybe leave our, our listeners with a step forward then is how can they contribute to the struggle? Um, the struggle may be for labor or for progress or for a better, better world. Like, what are some things that they could concrete steps that they could take in their lives?
1: Yeah. So if you're in a union, challenge your leaders, like what what is it we're going to do to address the fact that, you know, my classroom uh, doesn't have adequate ventilation? What are we going to do to address the fact that our wages have declined every year for the last five years uh, through inflation? What are we going to do to address the fact that, you know, freezes in public institutions, whether it's classrooms, universities uh, or wherever. Uh, uh have eroded our purchasing power so that now inflation is is kicking us even harder what are, what, is our ch- what is our what is what are we going to do if you're not in union advised environment right it's to reach out and be like well how are we going to get into e-? i mean one of the great tragedies of our time i think is that workers are left to fend for themselves in most uh in most most of their political and economic problems they're left on their own right we we don't have a uh, public policy that protects workers rights to organize in an aggressive way workers have been fighting for it, unions have been fighting for it, governments refuse. Uh, Like, I think those are the kind of real steps that we need to think about, but also being bold. And this is, I was talking about this with a group of young um, activists. I I think we need to think boldly about what, you know, what we can do to rebuild the labor movement. And I actually do think that the labor movement is the key to political and economic progress for working people. Without a fighting labor movement, governments aren't afraid of its citizens and they should be afraid of their citizens. Uh, They should be worried that they're going to lose support. They should be worried that cuts to education and healthcare will be met with challenges, you know, peaceful, large struggles. Um, Mm -hmm. And I want to romanticize it. But, you know, in France, uh, when governments threaten austerity, thousands of workers in Paris walk off the job and government is forced to listen to these workers in a way that we don't have that same culture here today. And I, I think that's something we need to think about. How do we foster the ability of workers to empower themselves and their colleagues to actually challenge power, and this I think gets to that question you asked earlier about, you know, the activist in, inside the NDPs. Like I'm, I'm going to stop with electoral politics and I'm going to move into, the, you know, activism, totally legitimate uh, and fair. But how do can we combine both? I think is our real challenge, right? To think that think that way, and I, the answer is I don't really know the answer, Steve, but, <laughs> but I think that's a good starting point to think about it, right?
0: The good news is we're giving people a lot to think about. So thank you so much for joining me, Charles. This has been fantastic. I appreciate you coming on so much.
1: I hope I didn't alienate anyone. It's not my attention. Hey, (laughs) you know,
0: I think it's important to know, like we mean both of us, everything with all respect. Like there are so many people doing so much good work out there and it's just different views on how to get to the same place. I really do think that.
1: Yeah. Well, and I mean, like you think about, uh, workers in like long-term care, right? I mean, I, I've met with some of them, you know, great union in SEIU West, uh, racialized, uh, primarily women workers who are just fighting like mad for better work conditions to help people, like, that's their job mm-hmm. to help people. And like, that's the kind of movement we want to inspire, right? More workers seeing that, seeing these incredibly brave women taking power for themselves and fighting back. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's amazing. And we want all workers to be able to benefit from those kind of struggles. And I think that's ultimately a good news story and uh but because they don't win all the time and we need to help them win all the time um that's really should be our challenge and goal
0: well i think that's that's a great note to leave people on so thank you so much charles and uh i hope we can talk again soon
1: thanks steve yeah great work on the podcast